Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 17. I've got to tell you right off the bat, this, uh, this is one of the, these studies I don't like as much, and here's why. We're going to cover a larger portion of Scripture this morning. In fact, I was going through it early this morning. I counted six separate messages I'd love to do out of Acts 17, but we just don't have that kind of time. We want to go through the journeys of Paul, not just in Athens, but it's a very rich Scripture. What we're going to do is look at a larger section and then pull out principles for our own lives instead of a smaller portion. Let me start with a story, though. There was a woman who was in her car behind a driver, a man who was in the front, and they were both stopped at a red stoplight. The stoplight turned green. The man in the lead car didn't notice, so he sat there. The woman behind him watched as cars behind her just went around both of them and made it through the intersection. So she was angry, and she yelled through her windshield at the driver in front and pounded her Uh, steering wheel, in hopes that he would go. He didn't go. So uh, the light that was now green turned yellow. Now she's beside herself. So she, she honks the horn, and he looks up, and he sees the light and accelerates just in time to make it through the intersection himself only, leaving her again to suffer through another cycle of a red light. Now, she goes ballistic. She starts cussing. As a guy goes by, she puts her hand out the window and gives uh, a certain inordinate hand gesture. Uh, She's, you know, yelling inside the car, pounding the dashboard. And suddenly, she hears a tap on the window. It's a man tapping. It's a policeman tapping. He has a gun in his hand. And he says, I want to see both of your hands in the air. Step out of the car slowly. She does. Put your hands on the car. She does. The policeman takes handcuffs out and handcuffs the lady, takes her to the city jail, leaves her in for two hours. Two hours later, the same police officer opens up the cell, lets her out and says, ma'am, I am so sorry. I made a mistake. However, he said, When I pulled up behind you while you were blowing your horn and flipping the guy off and cursing, I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder and the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker and the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker and the chrome-plated fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. Hey, hey, what do people naturally assume about our lives as they see us out there, especially behind the wheel? How do we interact with our culture? How different are we from our culture? How do we, who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Sovereign, how do we interact in a culture largely given over, dominated by an ideology that is against our own. 
That's where we turn to Acts 17 to see how Paul did it in Athens. Now, there's just something exciting about Paul the Apostle being in Athens. Here's the great Apostle in one of the great cultural cities of the ancient world. It was. Today, to this day, we are still impacted by ancient Greek culture. It was Alexander the Great's dream to Hellenize the world, make everything Greek. And effectively, he succeeded. Because today, art, drama, literature, philosophy, architecture, and politics all have Greece to thank for its root system. Now, we're going to look this morning... Beginning in verse 16, we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Then we're going to go back. We're going to find this. There are four stages, four steps to not only surviving in our culture, but making an impact, thriving in it. Verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Sounds like a modern university. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move, and we have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine natures like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands, commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. 
So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Now let's go back over the text. And at the front end, we're going to go a little more in-depth. And at the back end, we're just going to take some sweeping principles. There, there were four distinct steps that Paul took while he was there at Athens with this culture that made him very effective in this culture. And the four steps are this. Vision, how you see. Emotion, what you feel. Action, what you do about what you feel based on what you see. And finally, expression. What exactly do you say to people? The first one is vision. It says in verse 16, While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw. What is it that Paul saw when he was in Athens? Well, he would have seen a magnificent city even to this day. I visited Athens. It's spectacular, the ruins of that town. Athens had been conquered by the Romans around 146 B.C. And yet, even though the Romans took it over, they had such regard for Athens that it was, at the time of Paul, regarded a free city. Occupied by the Romans, but very respected by them. And he would have seen architectural creativity unrivaled in the ancient world. Talk about eye candy for the first century. Athens had it. He would have seen a 60,000-seat stadium. He would have seen the Odeon of Pericles, it was called, a great theater there. The ruins are still there to this day. He would have seen a music hall. He would have seen the marketplace called the Agora with its painted porticos from famous artists of the past. And he would have seen, as anyone today would see, this 500-foot rise in the center of the city called the Acropolis. And on the top of the Acropolis, two magnificent temples. The Parthenon, still there today, dedicated to the goddess Athena, from whom the city is named. And another temple, the Erechtheion. He would have seen that. It would have been marvelous. That's what he saw physically. But he saw something else, and this is the point that I'm getting at, is that the first step to surviving and thriving in a cultural swamp is that you're able to see correctly. He says that he saw that the city was given over to idols. There's an old saying that a Roman coined of that era. He said, it's easier to find a god than a man when you go to Athens. And he was not overstating it. Because the population of Athens was 10,000 human beings. There were 30,000 statues along the streets of that town. So there was a one to three correspondence of gods and goddesses to human beings. They were everywhere. And Paul saw the artwork, the temples, the porticos, the paintings, the statues. The kind of stuff that we say, quick, get a picture of me by that. But Paul was stirred inside. We'll get to that feeling in a moment. But he saw past the art, saw past the beauty, and saw the emptiness 
that those idols left in the hearts of human beings. Saw more than that. Verse 18, we're introduced to two groups of philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics. Now, you know, Athens was the home of the philosophers, right? Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Zeno, Epicurus. These was where, uh, this is where the great minds of the past formulated worldviews that still today impact the way people think. Now, two groups are mentioned here, and since they're mentioned, we ought to look at them so we know what Paul saw when he was there. There were Epicureans. Epicurus was a philosopher who believed in a worldview that is still very prevalent today. He, he thought there are gods, plural, in the universe, but they have very little, if anything, to do with human beings on the earth. So they were practical atheists. Now, Epicurus taught, and see if this doesn't sound familiar, that we are all here by chance, and that the universe came about by a random collision of particles that made what we have now, so that you live and then you die, and when you die, there's no more existence. You don't, you don't exist anymore after death. So, said Epicurus, the chief aim of life is pleasure through experience, and, along with pleasure, to avoid pain at all costs. Now, what generally happens to people who think that way? They become party animals. And the Epicureans were the first century party animals. It was all about pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Avoid pain at all costs. Because they said, we're an accident. So make the best of it. Now, there was another group of philosophers that Paul saw when he was there. Stoics are also mentioned in verse 18. Uh, that's a sort of the New Age philosophy of ancient Athens. Stoics were a group found by a philosopher by the name of Zeno. They were pantheistic. Now, if you don't know what that is, pantheists believe uh, that God and the world around us are one, one and the same. The Greeks, Stoics, called it the world soul. It sort of goes like this. God is in everything, man. God is the flowers and the trees and the rocks and the ground. It's all God. It's all seamless. There is no distinction. That's pantheism, and those were the Stoics. They believed, unlike the Epicureans, in fatalism. You can't change anything. It's predetermined already in advance. So your chief goal in life, if you were a Stoic, was to detach, to be aloof, to be apatheos, apathetic, without feeling, without emotion, because everything was predetermined. It's not surprising, then, that the first two Stoic leaders committed suicide with that kind of thinking. So here's Paul in Athens. It's beautiful. And there's all these philosophical groups around him. And they're so confused about life, they don't agree with each other. And every school of philosophy was different. No wonder Socrates said to his students, By all means, get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be very happy. If you find a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. They were all messed up. So, Paul in Athens saw physical magnificence. 
But he also saw spiritual decadence. Here's where I'm driving the point home this morning. For you and I to survive, for you and I to thrive in our cultural swamp, we have to see the world differently. We have to go deeper. We have to peel away the veneer and see what's underneath that stuff, that glitz, that glamour, that promise. In fact, I would put it this way. We need to put God's glasses on. Duncan Matheson, a Scotsman, said it right. God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Because when that happens, you see things differently. You remember Jesus when the crowds were following him in Galilee? And it says Jesus saw the multitudes. Now, Jesus saw people differently than you and I see people. When we see a multitude, we sometimes see them as an inconvenience. You know, you're at the mall at Christmas time and there's multitudes and you think, oh, I wanted to get here first before all the selfish people did, but they they beat me to it. (laughs) Or we see multitudes in a spiritual context as the proof of the effectiveness of our ministry. We don't read Jesus doing that. He didn't say, Peter, look how many people I got coming to my gig. No, it says he saw the multitudes and he saw them that they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. He viewed them differently. And we need to see life differently. That's always the first step. How we see the world around us leads us to the second step, and that is emotion, what you feel. Verse 16, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. You could even translate that verse. Paul had a fit. The word that is used here is a medical term that originally spoke of having an epileptic seizure. And so it's generally a word that describes anger, especially the anger of God toward idolatry. He's provoked. He's angered. It's not that he flew off the handle. It's a reasoned, slow-growing, well-thought-through feeling of anger at what he saw. He was provoked within him. Why? Because Paul saw past the veneer, the beauty, the art, the statues, the silver, the gold. And he saw the the emptiness, the pain left by idolatry and philosophy. And he couldn't relax. Paul couldn't do the tourist thing in Athens. You know, you would not want to have Paul on a vacation, probably. Because this guy just didn't seem to relax. You know, he's torn up inside. What he saw did something to him, and he starts feeling this way. And, and, I, and I have a question. Do you ever carry with you an inward provocation? Do you ever feel bothered by what you see in your culture? Or have we become so apathetic, we just say, yeah, whatever. Whatever. It's, just, it's cool, man. It's just the way it is. Now, I, I used Jesus a minute ago as an example of seeing the multitude. But what Jesus saw did something to what he felt. He saw the multitude weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The Bible says that Jesus was filled with compassion for them. I did a little digging and I found out that the word compassion 
is a Greek word splanchna, which literally means the intestines. If you were to give a literal translation to that verse in Matthew and in Mark, it would be this. When Jesus saw the multitude, he was filled with intestines because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. You say, that's gross. It's only because the ancient peoples believed that the intestines is where you feel the deepest emotion. We would call it in the pit of the stomach. And much like we would say today, I love you with all my heart. You don't mean your cardiac muscle. It's a figure of speech. So Jesus was filled with this deep pit of the stomach emotion. And the emotion was based on the vision. He felt a certain way because he saw a certain way. So, what's your reaction when you go to Hollywood? When you go to Las Vegas? If you ever make it to Paris or one of the European cultural centers? Our reaction is, wow, check it out, that's cool. It's been said that these are places that are looked over by millions of visitors and overlooked by millions of Christians. Now, I'm going to say something. I'm going to be very careful how I say it. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Um, There are lots of seminars and classes, courses that you can take on evangelism. We'll train you up to go out and say the right things. And they're all very good. But the focus is generally on strategizing, mobilizing, evangelizing. But listen, all of that, as good as it is, won't do any good unless you first begin with a deep, heartfelt care, a concern. Leading a person to Christ begins with loving a person for Christ's sake. It always begins with a deep, heartfelt concern based upon your ability to see things as they really are in that person's life. When Jesus saw Jerusalem... On his final visit. I remember when I saw Jerusalem, I thought, wow, get the camera. Jesus saw Jerusalem, he started crying. And with deep, heartfelt emotion, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. His heart broke. He saw differently and he felt differently. Or like Paul, who said, I have a great, deep concern in my heart. Over my fellow Jewish brethren, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for their sake. So the first step is vision. The second step is emotion based upon that vision. And the third step is action. What you do about what you feel based on what you see. Verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned. Don't miss that word, therefore. It's a transitional word. It's as if to say, because he saw that way, and because he felt this way, therefore he did this, based on that. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. And then the next several verses speak about him going to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. There are three things that Paul did, okay? He confronted three aspects of that culture. Again, it's all based on what he saw, 
what he felt, and now what he does. He confronts the culture. First thing he did is he confronted the religious culture. I find this interesting. He's in Athens, Paganville. He goes to a synagogue with Jewish people. It says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. Paul goes to his own church, you might say, his own religious community, and shares Christ with them. And I believe that today in the United States of America, a culture that is very religious, that spiritual religious church culture needs to hear the gospel. Because in a lot of cases, it has become, churches become a feel-good club that is a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. In many cases, churchgoers haven't been confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the demands of God. And I, I've heard this saying before. Oh, you're preaching to the choir. Ever heard that? Don't preach to the choir. Well, if the choir's singing the wrong song, preach to the choir. Paul goes and confronts the religious culture. Second thing Paul does is he confronts the civic culture. You notice in these verses that we read that he goes to the marketplace. The agora, it is called. Now, the agora is the place where you buy stuff and sell stuff, but the agora, the marketplace, was also the hangout for students in college and philosophers. They talk about news. They talk about ideas. They'd formulate policies in the agora. So it would be the equivalent of today as a Christian going to the university campuses, the college areas, the news and media outlets, the talk shows. And notice that Paul spoke with, it says, whoever happened to be there. I just sort of picture Paul walking through the marketplace, checking things out. He runs into somebody. They have a conversation. They happen to be there. And Paul happens to be a Christian. And he happens to tell them who he is and what he believes in. That relational kind of evangelism. Oz Guinness, who's now in heaven, he's a British. He was British. A theologian, thinker, and sometimes critic said this. The main problem with American Christians is not that they aren't where they should be, but they're not what they should be right where they are. Doctors, businessmen, teachers, etc., who are Christians. In other words, be a Christian doctor. Be a Christian businesswoman. Be a Christian whatever your profession is, right where you are with those who happen to be there. Confront the civic culture. The third thing Paul did, not just confront the religious culture, not just confront the civic culture, he confronted the political culture. He's in Athens, and he's invited to a place here in verse 18 through 21 called the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, which is actually a little hill. You can still see it in Athens. It was the place where the philosophical and political elite would gather and formulate policies. And they were true politicians, as I read in verse 21. They talked a lot. They didn't do much. But Paul was there. And Paul shared with them there in that political arena. Isn't it ironic that we evangelical Christians love to point the finger at bad politics... 
I say it's ironic because you know what? Only 36% of us voted last time. You can take pot shots at stuff. It's another thing to say, you know what? I can confront that culture by actually voting for what I believe in and getting involved in it. So I love that about Paul. He, he didn't just see something. He didn't just feel something deeply. He could have walked through Athens going, what a shame, what a shame, this is horrible, it's dark, and thrown up his hands in despair. But he thought, I'm not going to curse the darkness. I'll flip on a light. Here goes. In the synagogue, in the marketplace, and on the Areopagus. Fourth and finally, we close with this, is the expression. The expression. What you say. And, and uh, time fails us to go through this sermon that Paul gives. It's so incredible. Maybe we'll do that next time. But verse 22 through 34 shows what Paul said, gives us the very words he used in speaking to that culture. And I just want to sum it up with four quick approaches, four quick things that he did, how he spoke. Number one, notice this, Paul spoke courteously to them. First of all, he was invited to the Areopagus. He didn't say, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle, I'm a spokesperson from God. Ready? He waited till he was invited. He operated by invitation, not intimidation. And once he's there, he's very polite. Notice what he says. You know, I've looked around Athens and I figured out that you are very religious people. That's a nice thing to say. He didn't say, I looked around and you got a bunch of pagan worshipers, idol entertainers, and you're all on your way to hell. <laughs> he could have said that. It would have been true. But he wanted to keep that door open just a little longer than that. He didn't want to shut the door. He wanted the opportunity to speak. So he opens up being very kind, very polite. He says, I notice you're religious. You even got this statue out there, you're so spiritual, to agnosto theo, to an unknown God. And, and that was sort of a rub because the Athenians knew everything the world thought. He goes, well, I know the God you don't know. Let me tell you about him. So he spoke courteously to them. Second thing to notice is he spoke culturally to them. He found something in their culture that they were familiar with, and he used that as his starting point. That statue to the unknown God. It showed them, hey, this guy cares about us. He's cared enough to observe what we believe in and how we live. Not only that, but down in verse 28, Paul quotes two pagan Greek poets. To me, that's fascinating. It's fascinating. He quotes a 6th century poet by the name of Epimenides who said, In him we live and move and have our being. Paul pulled that out of his memory bank. Showed them, hey, this guy's smart. He's well read. Same verse, he quotes another, a second Greek poet. Aratus of Soli, who said in the 3rd century, For we also are his offspring. Now, when Eratus said that, he meant Zeus. We are the offspring of Zeus. Paul the Apostle pulls out that pagan saying and says, you know what? We are the offspring, not of Zeus, but of God who sent his son, Jesus Christ. Now, why am I interested in that? Because it would be the equivalent of saying, you know, there's an old Bob Dylan song that said, or I was listening to Coldplay the other day and I noticed their lyrics say this. The culture would say, 
He listens to our questions before He gives us the answers. It's very important when you witness to somebody that you listen to what they're saying. But I already have all the answers. But they want to know that you love their questions. So He spoke courteously. He spoke culturally. Third thing He did is He spoke theologically. He spoke theologically. Paul began with God, you'll notice, and he works his way down in his sermon all the way down to man and man's responsibility to God. Now that's exactly the opposite of the way the Greeks approached the world. The Greeks all began with man. And they worked their way up in their experience and expression toward the pantheon of gods. They were humanists. In fact, the, uh, the most famous original humanist was Protagoras, 5th century B.C., who said, man is the measure of all things. Paul would say, well, he's really not. And he begins with God, and he works his way down to man and man's responsibility. So, in verse 24, he says God is the creator. In verse 25, Paul mentions God is the sustainer. In verse 26 and 27, Paul says God is the ruler. Verse 28 and 29, God is father. 30 and 31, God is the judge. So all the things the Greeks were confused about, in one sermon Paul cleared up all their confusion. As if to say, death doesn't end it all, Epicureans. Uh, And life is not fatalistic, Stoics. No, history is moving somewhere by God's pre-appointed plan, but giving you the choice to do something about that. And it will all end up, says Paul, at the judgment of God. It's, it's a masterpiece in communication. He spoke courteously, culturally, theologically, had meat in it. Fourth and finally, we close with this, Paul spoke practically to them. You know, he didn't just say, you know, I have sort of my own philosophical, theological ideology and spout it off. See you guys, Starbucks next week. No, he gives them something practical. He says, okay, Now God commands everywhere to repent. He ends with judgment and repentance. Here's something you can do about that. And brings them to that place of repentance. A choice. Now the last few verses, and we already read them, shows what response these Athenians had, this culture had to Paul. Response number one, rejection. They mocked him. What an idiot. Religious fanatic. A second response, reflection. Well, I'm not sure. We'll hear you again on this matter. Actually, that's a choice against Christ. Third response is some believed, it says. Some believed. And two of them are mentioned. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris, two two notable people in town. Uh, Among others as well. So this is how it works. When you live in this culture, if you can see things right, which would lead to having the right emotional response, that'll lead you to do something in confronting your culture. And when you do that, think in advance what you're going to say and always end up with some practical choice that people can make. You say, but will it really make a difference? Well, you're not going to change the city or the world overnight. They're not all going to believe, but some will. Some will. And God could use your life to do it. And it's my heart 
heartfelt prayer that you won't just make it in this world. Just pray for me, Pastor. I just want to make it. I don't want you just to make it. I don't want you just to survive, but to thrive. To look this culture in the eye and say, tell me your questions. Because God has great answers. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not become like that eagle who came to this earth to seek its prey and landed on the cold ground and became so affected by the cold environment that it couldn't even lift its wings to fly anymore. I pray that that we would soar and that as we make it day by day as Christian secretaries and doctors and business people and students and housewives and husbands, that wherever we are, we would be who we are because we see differently and we feel differently and it prompts us to do something about it, to say something about it. And I pray if anyone here this morning doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that they would be convinced and brought to that place of conviction and turning to you as their Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.